Thank you for downloading this episode of Heartland Podcast. My name is Rasmus Quiskart, and I'm the program director of talks at Heartland Festival. The podcast you are listening to is part of Heartland's Future Talks program. The future is one of the most important and most debated topics of public discourse. However, the debates about our common future is often dominated by economists or politicians. The future talks, on the other hand, invite futurists, artists, as well as researchers and some of Denmark's and the world's best scientists to help us understand our common future. Heartland Future Talks 2017 were created in collaboration with Scenario magazine and supported by the Novo Nordisk Foundation. The talk you're about to hear is called The First Person to Reach a Thousand Years Has Already Been Born. It's a live talk, an interview that took place at Heartland Festival in 2017 in front of roughly 1,100 people in our Future Talks tent. The talk is by Aubrey de Grey and the interviewer is Klaus Kilsten. Aubrey de Grey is an English biomedical gerontologist and the chief science officer of the Sense Research Foundation in California. He has been referred to as the world's leading expert on aging and is widely famous for his view that medical technology will enable human beings to live almost indefinitely. He sounds like this. I was completely horrified. It had never occurred to me that anyone could disagree with the idea that aging is the world's most important problem, the thing that causes the world's most amount of suffering. Klaus Kilsten is a futurist and the CEO of Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies. He's a renowned keynote speaker and an expert on how societies and businesses can adapt strategically to current and future trends. And he sounds like this. I'm a 43-year-old, overweight, middle-aged man. How are the chances that I can benefit from like the early, the early discoveries within my lifespan? In this talk, Aubrey de Grey seeks to give answers to questions about the aging process. What happens to the body when we age? What can we do about the aging process? And why should we work towards curing age-related diseases and thereby prolonging life? In the follow-up interview, Gray, among other things, talks about the resistance of some people to support age-related research and age therapy. And he explains how people can benefit from the therapy that already exists. I am extremely honored and very, very proud to be able to present Mr. Aubrey de Grey, and please give him a big hand. All right. Um, I can't sing as well as Klaus, so I'm not going to try. Um, but I hope I'll be able to entertain you in some other ways for the next half hour. Um, I have noticed already that this clock is only counting down the minutes, not the seconds. Okay, I'll worry about that later. Um, so, uh, I, I don't often speak at festivals, but I, I love to do so, because I tend to find that, especially the younger generation, understand what I'm going to tell you a lot better than people who have lost the ability to aim high, which basically means, you know, most of the elderly. Um, also, it's great to be back in Denmark. I don't come here nearly often enough. My first girlfriend was Danish, 
Um, so, Sana, if you're watching this, get in touch for fuck's sake. I have never, I completely lost. Um, uh, yeah, but I, so I know how to count in Danish. I know how to say, yeah, Elska die. And um, that's about it. But I also know how to order a beer, which is the most important thing of all. So, um, anyway, so I'm going to tell you about the problems that people have in getting to grips with the challenge of aging. And I'm going to start with what Klaus started with, namely the idea that it's all about living forever and that that's a somewhat questionable motivation. The fact is, what I work on and what my colleagues and everyone in this field works on is not immortality. We don't work on that. We don't even work on longevity at all. We work on health. I am a medical researcher. I don't want to get Alzheimer's disease. Hands up any, anyone in the audience who wants to get Alzheimer's disease. Hands up anyone who wants anybody else to get Alzheimer's disease. Well, that was easy. All right. So what I'm going to be telling you today is that the reason why there is so little interest in society in bringing the full force of medical research to bear on the problem of aging is because of certain profound misconceptions that people have. Some of those misconceptions revolve around whether it would be a good idea to do anything about aging. And I will try to explain to you that that's because people have a distorted idea of what aging is. And some of those misconceptions revolve around whether it would be possible to do anything about aging with medicine, even if we decided we wanted to. And I will explain to you that that too is because of fundamental misconceptions and misunderstandings about what aging is. I'm going to start, I think, with the second of those two questions. The question of why, whether we could do anything about aging if we tried. And that's why I've got this rather curious diagram up on the screen behind me. I was told that today I shouldn't give the kind of talk that I give to most audiences where I have like 20 slides. I should just have a maximum of two or three. So I decided to stick with one, and this is it. Um, and, um, well, so I'm going to explain to you all about this slide. I'm going to spend, well, at least five minutes, maybe longer, explaining what it's all about. Now, the fundamental starting point of all of this is to define, to tell you how to think about what aging is. I've already said that, and I'm probably going to say it a few more times because it's really, really important. The first thing I want to tell you about what aging is is that it's not a phenomenon of biology. What? I just said it wasn't a phenomenon of biology. I really mean it. Aging is a phenomenon of physics. It happens in living organisms in pretty much exactly the same way that it happens in simple man-made machines, like cars or aeroplanes or whatever. It's a fact of physics that when a machine operates, so long as it has moving parts anyway, that machine is bound, it's certain, it's absolutely certain to do itself damage 
throughout the course of its operation, starting from when it comes into existence. That damage is initially harmless. It consists of small harmless changes to the molecular composition of the machine, its structure, and the machine is set up to withstand and tolerate those changes up to a point. But eventually, those changes continue to accumulate and they reach a point where the machine is not set up to tolerate. And that's when the machine starts to work less well. So think about what happens in a car. Cars accumulate rust, right? Now, we know that rust is bad for a car. But how do we know? Because eventually the doors fall off. And that's kind of, you know, a decline in the function of the car. It doesn't, we, we like our cars to have doors. So that is what aging is. And, I'm, and the first thing, I, the fundamental thing I want to tell you today is that aging of you and me is pretty much the same as that. The human body is set up to tolerate a whole bunch of damage, but not an infinite amount. And the human body does damage to itself, starting from before we are born. Because as a side effect of all of the many things that the body has to do throughout life to keep us alive. So what I've told you so far can be condensed into the bottom half of the diagram I'm showing you here. Metabolism is the word that biologists use to, um, to denote all of the things that the body has to do. Uh, yeah, so, so the, yeah, there's a huge number of things that the body has to do. And that's even just counting the things that we know the body has to do. The body does huge numbers of things that we're discovering all the time. So metabolism, that one word there, encompasses an almost infinite complexity. But what matters is not the complexity of metabolism. What matters is that metabolism creates damage throughout life, as I just mentioned. And that damage is initially harmless, but eventually, once it has accumulated to a sufficient level, it causes these things that we don't want, the ill health of old age. And that's, that, that's the thing that I'm denoting with the word pathology. That's all aging is. And of course, I'm describing it using terms that are biological, but I think it's absolutely essential to understand, so let me repeat, that that's not part of the definition of aging. That's just the application of aging to living organisms. I could write exactly the corresponding thing for the aging of a car, and it would look the same. All right, so why is this so important? Why have I chosen to spend you know, three minutes on that? The answer is because once you understand that, you can understand very much more easily what might and might not work as an approach to doing something about it. What we want to do, of course, is to try to break the link between metabolism and pathology, the link between being alive and being dead. And the way we can do that, there are many possibilities. We could break the link between metabolism and damage, and that is what people who study the biology of aging try to do. They try to effectively clean up metabolism and uh, stop it from creating damage. You know, if you could do that, fantastic. And then there's the alternative of trying to break the link between damage and pathology. 
because if you did that, then it wouldn't matter how much damage you had, you would still be healthy. And that's pretty much what geriatricians try to do, people who try to develop medicines against the various things that go wrong with us late in life. Now, you may have noticed that nobody's saying that we have cured aging yet. In other words, the approaches that have been tried for breaking the link between metabolism and pathology have not worked, despite the fact that we do spend a prodigious, a very large amount of money trying to actually make it happen, trying to break that link. Nearly all of that money is spent in the right-hand end of this um, of this diagram with, on, the, on geriatrics, geriatric medicine, trying to attack the pathologies of old age directly and eliminate them from the body just in the same way that we might eliminate an infection from the body. And once you think about what aging is, as this three-word summary, metabolism causing damage, causing pathology, it's easy to see that geriatric medicine will never work. I mean, look at it. What's happening is that metabolism is continuing to operate in everybody and progressively it creates more and more damage and the damage is more and more powerful at creating pathology. So it's pretty much a matter of definition that any attempt to attack the pathologies directly, any geriatric medicine, is going to become progressively more ineffective as time goes on. It's just going to get weaker and weaker because the damage is going to overpower it more and more. It's ridiculous that we spend so much money trying to do this. It's utterly misguided. Unfortunately, the other approach that I mentioned, breaking the link between metabolism and damage, is also very misguided simply because metabolism is too complicated. I already emphasized to you that metabolism consists of a vast number of processes and that's just the ones that we know about and we keep discovering more all the time. The network of processes that's involved in keeping us alive is just astronomically complex. So we just have no chance of tweaking it so that it doesn't do the thing we don't want it to do, the creation of damage, without having unintended consequences that stop it from doing the things we need it to do to keep us alive. All right, well, this is all very miserable, but if that were the end of my story, I probably wouldn't be standing here. So um, uh, you may be wondering what the, next, what, 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 the, what the missing link is, what the catch is. And, of course, there's one word on this diagram that I haven't yet drawn your attention to. It's the word in blue. What do we do to keep cars and aeroplanes going? Well, of course, most of us do not very much. We do as much as the law requires to keep our car on the road. You know, we take it to, uh, for, a, for a, what in the UK is called an MOT uh, every year, and that ensures that it is maintaining its minimal state of roadworthiness. And... Eventually, the car gets to a point where achieving that standard of roadworthiness costs a bit of money, and most of us say, screw this, and we junk it, and we go and get another car. The problem is that that's, what we, that's not what we need to do. If you think about it, there are cars that lasted a long time. There are cars driving around today that are literally 100 years old. Now, 
Think about why those cars have lasted so long and why they are still working as well as they did when they were built. It's not because they were designed to last that long. That's the critical thing you have to pay attention to here. It's not because they were designed to last 100 years. They were probably designed to last no longer than today's cars, no longer than 10 or 15 years at the outside. So why have they lasted so long? Simply because the people who have owned them have, for whatever reason, fallen in love with them, and they have decided to do a an unusual amount of maintenance on them much more comprehensive maintenance than most people do on their cars. So these cars are a demonstration that maintenance works. What is maintenance in terms of disrupting the link between metabolism and pathology? It simply says, let's not worry about trying to break the link between metabolism and damage, and let's also not try to break the link between damage and pathology, both of which I have told you are really, really difficult to do. Instead, we can separate those two processes from each other. We can break the overall process by going in and periodically repairing the damage. That's what preventative maintenance is. You repair damage before there is so much of it that the doors fall off. And if we do that, we can get away with leaving these processes alone. Effectively, what that means is that we sidestep all of our ignorance about the complexity of metabolism. And incidentally, we also sidestep all of our ignorance about the complexity of age-related pathology, which is also very great. So we make the problem massively, massively simpler. Now, today I haven't got time to tell you about whether it makes it simpler enough, but if you want, if you want to know, then you can obviously look up our work on YouTube or go to our website or anything like that. Um, you know, I, we have a foundation for a reason. So, uh, yeah, the fact is it's going rather well, and I think that within the next 20 years or so, we have a very good chance of developing these maintenance therapies to a point where they actually work decisively. In other words, where we can genuinely eliminate people's need to get sick when they get old. We can keep people truly youthful, both physically and mentally, however long they live. That is what we want to do. However, there's a catch. The, well, there's actually two catches, but the first one doesn't really count because you knew it already. One catch is that we don't know that we can do this in 20 years. I can tell you that I think we have at least a 50-50 chance of doing it in 20 years, but you know as well as I do that any really pioneering technology, any technology that's that far off, the actual question of exactly how far off it is is extremely speculative. I totally accept that there's at least a 10% chance that we won't get there in 100 years. But so what, really? You know, a 50% chance is perfectly, well, perfectly enough to be worth fighting for. So that doesn't actually change the logic of any of this. However, there is a second caveat to my prediction of how long this is going to take. The caveat is, it's only going to happen if the research that needs to be done at this early stage is well enough funded. And at the moment, it's pathetically underfunded, and I'm not talking only about my own organization, I'm talking about the whole field. And that's fundamentally because people are unconvinced about whether it would be a good idea to actually bring aging under medical control. So I'm going to spend the rest of my time on that. And the reason I'm particularly happy to talk to young audiences is not just because 
they tend to be more open-minded and willing to aim high and so on, but also because you're the people with the best chance of benefiting from all of this. In case you'd forgotten, a maintenance approach to maintaining the healthy functioning of a machine, whether it's living or not living, is something that you don't apply at the beginning of the machine's life. You tend not to apply it in earnest until the machine is maybe two-thirds of the way through its natural life. And then you rejuvenate it. You put it back into a state that it was in at an earlier point. It's going to be exactly the same for you and me. The idea is that we take people who might be 60 years old, they might even be a little older than that, and we fix them up so that they're biologically 30 or 40 again. So that they don't get to be biologically 60 again until they're maybe 90 years old. And then we fix them up with more sophisticated therapies that we developed in the intervening 30 years so that they won't be biologically 60 for a third time until they're 150 years old or something like that. That's the whole point of all of this. So then it sounds like it would be quite a good idea and I have a feeling that most of you would quite well. We've already established that you don't want to get Alzheimer's. So what is the problem? What is, what is wrong with society that it is not prioritizing this? After all, we know, we all know that in the industrialized world, the overwhelming majority of our medical budget is spent on the ill health of the elderly. In fact, it's about 90%. It's an extraordinarily high number. Even in the developing world, this is already true that we spend the majority of our, our medical care on the ill health of the elderly. Um, it, as of last year, it became true that not a single country in the world has a life expectancy less than 50. And not a single country outside of sub-Saharan Africa has a life expectancy below 60. So you can figure out immediately that that means that most of the ill health in any country, even in the poorest countries, comes from aging. All right, so, again, what is the issue? Why are people so unwilling to grasp this? Fundamentally, it's fear, in my view. I think that it's fear of getting your hopes up. We have, since the dawn of civilization, we have spent our time trying to put aging out of our minds because we have known how horrible it is and we've also known that it's inevitable and so, you know, what do we do? We've got to find some way to get on with our miserably short lives and, you know, make the best of it and, and, and not be preoccupied by this ghastly thing that's going to happen to us in the distant future. Made sense. But it only made sense when we were so far away from having any prospect of doing anything about ageing that, for all intents and purposes, we would never be able to. Now, we have a lot of tools. We have a lot of medicine, and in particular, we have a lot of tools that are going to underpin the medicine of the near future. So now, we are within striking distance of bringing ageing under medical control. And it is outrageous to think in the same way that we would think 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. The particular thing that annoys me the most is that all of the objections to the um, idea that we should attack ageing in earnest are really easy to answer 
it's really easy to explain why we don't need to worry about having too many people or paying the pensions or dictators living forever or boredom or any of those ideas that I get asked about really rather a lot. In fact, I'm not even going to bother answering them right now. You can ask me later if you want to. Um, but I might, I might go through one or two of them. But the point is, I've been answering these things, and not just me, lots of people have been answering these things for a very long time. And what is particularly frustrating is that nobody actually finds any issue with the answers. They just change the subject, and they'll come back the following day or the following week, and they'll have the same objection as if we hadn't given any answers in the first place. So this is why I say that the fundamental problem is psychological, that ultimately people just do not want to think about aging because they're so scared of it, that they're so um, defeated by it. They've made their peace with it, and they just don't want to re-engage this battle. Everything I've told you today about aging, you may have noticed one, thing, one word that I haven't used throughout this talk so far, and that's the word disease. I haven't told you that aging is a disease. And I'm not going to, because I don't think it's a useful term. When you call something a disease, what you're basically doing is that you're giving the impression that it's something like an infection. All infections are indeed diseases, right? But is Alzheimer's disease a disease? Think about it. It's not like an infection at all. It's a side effect of being alive. It's a consequence of having too much of, a certain, of certain types of damage in the brain. That's what Alzheimer's disease is. We all know that. It's not something that comes in from the outside. It's possible that there are certain external influences that may slightly alter one's likelihood of getting Alzheimer's at a particular age, but the overwhelming cause of Alzheimer's is simply being alive in the first place. So it's not like an infection. And I believe that it is extremely problematic to call things like Alzheimer's or atherosclerosis or osteoporosis or most cancers, to call those things diseases. They're just not diseases. They're parts of aging. Why am I emphasizing this so much? Simply because if you think of them as diseases, then first of all, you're going to attack them in the wrong way. You're going to do what I've called geriatrics up here, and it's not going to work. But also, the reason we do it is because that way we can be comfortable about wanting to fight those things that we call diseases, but then we have this residue, this, the, the rest of aging, which we, have, which we can kind of say it's not a disease, or it's not even a collection of diseases, and therefore in some way it's a, um, you know, it's, a, it's okay to think it's okay, it's okay to not worry about it, it's natural and it's inevitable and it's somehow off limits to medicine, even in principle. If we think that way, then it's easy to put, the, put that aspect of aging out of our minds and just think about the aspects of aging that we have chosen to give disease-like names to. But it's infantile. It's absolutely crazy to think that way because it means that we're just going to carry on getting sick and dying just the way our parents and grandparents and great-great-great-parents did. And I'd rather not do that. I'd rather stay healthy. I'd rather stay in the same condition that I am now, however long I live. 
Now, I want to come back in the last few minutes to the longevity issue. The fact is, medicine makes people healthier, and most people die of being sick. So that means, you know, most people don't die from being hit by trucks or whatever, right? Most people die from being sick. So, if we stop people from getting sick, then there's going to be a side effect. Namely, people on average are going to live longer. With today's medicine, that's already true, but of course the magnitude of the side effect is rather small. On average, any particular disease that we might develop a cure for will only be shortening the longevity of a small proportion of people by a small number of years, so the impact on the population as a whole will be rather tiny. If, on the other hand, we completely eliminate aging by the methods that I've been speaking about today, we're in a different world. We will have a situation in which most people will live a hell of a lot longer, at least probably, unless we get hit by an asteroid. And that tends to scare people. Now, why it scares people makes no sense. How much... I mean, okay, here's the thing, right? Do you actually care how long ago you were born? You know, take yourself back, take yourself back to the first time you had sex, right? And think what you were thinking immediately beforehand. Were you thinking, oh my God, oh my God, I have to get this person into bed right now because I've only got another 60 years to live? You know, probably not, right? It just it's no, it makes no sense to think in terms of one's age, one's chronological age, or how long one's going to live in making one's decisions. All that matters is people don't like being sick. People don't like other people being sick. And people don't like the prospect of becoming sick. If we just focus on the health and we forget about the longevity side effect, then we get the message. And the longevity side effect should not be a distraction. It's a good, it's a good thing. It's a side benefit. It's great that people would be able to carry on living because most people enjoy living when they're not sick. And that's the only thing we're trying to do here. But people have a lot of difficulty thinking about it that way. I will just, you know, go in for, since I've got two minutes left, go into one detail with regard to the consequences of success in this endeavor. Because people do get worried about these things. They'll say, oh, well, this sounds all very well. I love not to get Alzheimer's and all that. But, mm, you know, we're going to have too many people if we do that. You know, where are we going to put them all? We've already got too many people, and that's why we have climate change and so on. Well, hello, there's a couple of problems with that argument. The first problem is that we're already solving this. We're already increasing the carrying capacity of the planet far faster over the next 20 or 30 years than there's any prospect of doing by eliminating aging, simply by reducing pollution, you know, developing cheap solar energy and artificial meat and desalination and so on and so forth. We're, in, we're increasing the number of people that the planet can support without an environmental impact. And that's going to outrun any increase in the population. But the other reason is, hello, think about whether you actually care about being sick. How much do you care? Should you or should you not actually keep people healthy rather than having more kids? You know, I know that you all, I mean, you all know that population in the whole world is already, is already leveling off because everywhere, as soon as they reach a certain level of prosperity, their fertility rates go down. But more than that, the fact is, even if we had to make a choice 
between having uh, no ill health, you know, no Alzheimer's, no cancers, and so on, or, on the other hand, having a lot of kids, you know, that's a choice, that's a choice. And we, are, we have a moral obligation to create that choice, to give that choice to the next generation, which actually means you, all right? You guys, supposing 30 years from now, these therapies have not been developed, and you guys are all getting sick, same as, the people, same as your parents and grandparents did, you're probably not going to be very happy that we didn't take the trouble to invent the therapies that could have stopped that from happening. And I do not want to be responsible for condemning an entire generation of people to an unnecessarily painful and unnecessarily early death just because I thought that it would be better for them. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Aubrey. <clears throat> a lot of uh, fascinating uh, aspects around this area. Like, um, I will start out with a question to a huge uh, personal concern. I'm a 43-year-old, overweight, middle-aged man. How are the chances that I can benefit from like, the, early, the early discoveries within my lifespan? Well... As I said, the answer to that is extremely speculative. We can never tell, even if a technology is five years away, in it, with any kind of precision, how long it's going to take. But if my prediction that I just gave is correct, in other words, if we get these technologies within the next 20 years, then that means you're only going to be in your early 60s, and you're probably not going to be particularly sick yet, and therefore you are highly likely to be able to benefit from these therapies. However, that relies not only on the science going as fast as it looks to me as, it, as though it could, but also on the science not being held back by lack of funding. I get that. I read from some of your material you have identified like seven must-win battles within this area. Uh, are there any areas where we are closer to reaching a breakthrough and can we, not in a large scale, but just in one area of disease or something, apply something for this? Yeah, kind of. So, so, yes, I have um, one of the biggest um, things that helped me to be optimistic about this as of 15, 17 years ago was when I realized that all of the many types of damage that we accumulate can be classified into these seven major categories. And yes, for some of them we are a lot further forward than others. However, there's a problem. Even though each individual category, if we can figure out how to repair it really well, we may be able to influence the um, progression of one or two of the diseases of old age, as they are often called, but, you know, the aspects of aging, then um, that's good. But the fact is, if we want to postpone all of our ill health long enough so that we can actually live a significantly amount, significant amount longer, we really have to fix all of the seven things. Yeah, I mean, it's a divide-and-conquer strategy. So any of these things can kill you more or less on schedule, however well we fix the others. So when I listen to your, your, your presentation and, and, and the thoughts behind it, I find it very hard to disagree with your arguments, like, I don't like Alzheimer's, I don't like Parkinson's disease. Already, 
a massive amount of funding are going into research, and, and, and basically the health industry is about keeping the wealthy healthy. And the good news is that all countries will, which are aging fast right now are also the wealthy countries. So why is this area so, you, saw, you called it, extremely underfunded? Or yeah. It's fundamentally because of this psychological, psychologically driven misclassification of the diseases of old age. People, all of this money, virtually all of this money, is going on treatments that will never work because they are trying to do something that can't be done, the elimination of aspects of ageing from the body as if they were infections. If we were not doing that, if we were, put, if we were able to understand that these things are part of ageing and they need to be attacked using this preventative maintenance approach, then there wouldn't be a problem. Could there be like a a triggering event that would probably change the world's view in this area? Or, or... I, I think the world, yes. I mean, even though this area is pathetically underfunded, nevertheless, progress is being made by the small number of researchers who are able to get any money to do it. And so, of course, eventually that progress gets out. And the reason I'm sitting here and the reason I do so many talks and interviews is because there is a great deal of public interest in this, even if the you know, the public seem to want to maintain some kind of emotional distance from it and not really take it seriously. So that means that eventually there will come a point where a breakthrough is made in the laboratory that is not by any means the whole story, but it is a sufficiently impressive breakthrough that the experts in the area, the specialists, even the ones with reputations that they need to maintain, um, they will be willing to go on camera and say, yes, this is coming, it's only a matter of time. I believe that that will cause the tipping point, that once we know that it's coming, that you know, people will say, well, let's make it come a little sooner and save a lot of lives. And at that point, it will be impossible to get elected unless you have a war on aging in your manifesto. Um, if I could ask you a personal question, why have you devoted your life and your career to this course? What is driving you? I do this basically for humanitarian reasons. When I was very young, I realized that what I fundamentally wanted to do with the world was to, ch to change it, to improve people's lives. Actually, the alternative was to do what my mother was telling me to do and practice the piano. And I decided I didn't want to do that because the best possible outcome would that I, was that I would become another good pianist. What was the point of that? You know, there are plenty of other good pianists. I got a Brian Inno was here last year. You know, he's a pretty good pianist. Um, so um, uh, yeah, I thought, no, I don't want to do that. And so I decided to go into artificial intelligence research. When I was dating Susanna, I um, was actually doing that. But then several years later, I met a biologist and married her and discovered that hardly anybody was working on doing anything about aging. I was completely horrified. It had never occurred to me that anyone could disagree with the idea that aging is the world's most important problem, the thing that causes the world's most amount of suffering. And therefore, I decided, well, I've got to switch fields. And luckily, I was in a position where I could do that. Interesting. As you mentioned, we have been able to increase the life expectancy, but basically not lifting the bar like the, we are still around 100 and something. And, and the reason that we have gained, almost every country has gained more than 10 years, is more because instead of dying of a heart disease around uh, uh, 42, do you think that what you referred to as 
these low-hanging fruits that we have been picking, that we have reached kind of a glass ceiling now with the, with the tools that have gained us these uh, 10 years? Kind of. There are really two glass ceilings. The first one was with regard to early death, death in, in infancy and in childbirth and so on, death from infections. In the industrialized world, hardly anybody young dies at all anymore, and that's basically why. We've more or less eliminated that cause of death. So we've totally hit that glass ceiling. But we had hit it maybe in World War II around that time, right? Now, and since then, life expectancy has still gone up, maybe another 15 years or more. Why? The answer is because there's a second glass ceiling, which we haven't quite hit yet. Uh, essentially, if your early life is, is prosperous, you tend to have better nutrition, and also you tend to avoid you know, the worst bad activities and strenuous labor and so on. And the result is that you end up being, if you like, biologically a bit younger throughout your life than you otherwise would have been. In fact, it turns out that prenatal nutrition matters a huge amount for that. So that's why, people, that's why life expectancy has continued to go up, just because nations have been becoming more prosperous. But those factors, again, as I say, we are fairly close to that second glass ceiling now as well. So I fully expect, and so do most people in this field, that over the next 20 years, we will not see as much of an increase as we have seen over the past 20 years or the previous 20 years. Um, however, 20 years from now, we may get these therapies I've been talking about, and then bang. And, and, and in, in my book, the glass ceiling could also be the triggering rent because then that will create a wish for finding new, new ground in that perspective. Uh, I would hope so. I'm not holding my breath on that. <laughs> no. And looking back, you have been working in, in, in this area for more than 15 years now. Have you really reached any breakthrough in these? One of the... One of the best things about working in the, at the coalface, so to speak, of all of this is that I see breakthroughs all the time, uh, you know, in, the labor in our own laboratory and in other laboratories because I'm, I'm watching the details. But in order to explain why they are breakthroughs, I would have to give you half an hour of background. The fundamental breakthroughs that are immediately easy to understand to the non-specialist are, of course, much fewer and further between. And no, we haven't had any of those really. And that's what you would expect from the approach that I've been talking about today. Because it's a divide-and-conquer approach, any component of it, even if it starts to work really well, is not going to actually deliver much of a difference overall. I get that. So my, my, my final question, or, or maybe not the final, but, but one of the last questions. If you had the power necessary, if you could change this, what kind of change should be done for, for fast-tracking fast this area? Well, this is the, fundamental, the, the wonderful thing, but also the most frustrating thing, is that there's only one change that needs to happen. There just needs to be more money. When I started out, I had three big problems to solve. Number one, I needed a plan. And I've got a plan. You, know, you just saw it, right? Number two, I needed people. I needed to be able to convince world-leading specialists in all of the relevant areas that this was a plan they wanted to work on to actually implement. And it turned out that that wasn't very difficult either. Uh, certainly 10 years ago, maybe even longer ago than that, I had pretty much done that. All of the areas were covered. So for the last decade, there's just been one problem left, and it's still there. And that's the funding issue. And that's issue. the money. Yeah, yeah but that, that, because if this is, like, if it could, you say that cancer all these diseases are just a result of aging, and you have that overarching solution to that. In my mind, why 
Why is this still the issue? Why aren't more money addressed to this? What is holding this back? Psychology, fatalism, fear of getting hopes up, have, you know, resistance to re-engaging in a battle against something that you've already made your peace with. That's what it all, it's all about. Refusal to believe that you were wrong about giving up. But when I look at behavior, when I look at how people are acting, I'm 43, I'm acting like I'm 27. When I look at my grandmother, she is 93, and she's still laughing a little bit when she says, yeah, I'm kind of old now. And then the idea is that I should say, no, you're not grandmother, you're still young. Uh, so in many ways, everybody wants to solve this question. So I, I don't get that you say that it's still controversial and that we have, because actually I would yeah. say I disagree with you. Well, well no, the thing is that it's a combination between wanting to solve something and feeling able to solve it. If you end up really, 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 really wanting to solve it, but you're so that it can't be solved, then you end up in this paradoxical situation that I described where the only solution is to put it out of your mind. Okay, and then um, one thing that I would also like to have your opinion on, you categorize this as the world's biggest problem. Like, a lot of people would say, couldn't we get economic growth in Africa? How do you prioritize, and why is this, in your mind, not the case? For me, it's perfectly clear. It's just a matter of the magnitude, the, the quantity of suffering that is caused. If you ask anybody what matters to them the most, and what the worst thing has been in their lives, it is when they were sick for a long time, or when their loved ones were sick. It matters more than being poor. And, uh, you know, it, it, being sick for a long time, which is what happens when you get old, as opposed to just being sick for a short time when you get an infection, you know, that makes it worse still. So, yeah, it's, sheer, it's just the sheer magnitude of the thing. Aubrey, thank you very much. It has been fascinating listening to you. Everybody, please give a big hand for Aubrey de Grey. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.